Welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDormand. In this episode, we are covering reports of certain events in London by China Mieville. This was originally published in the anthology McSweeney's Enchanted Chamber of Astonishing Stories. It's a great name. Uh, this was back in 2004. Yeah, this story is a lot of fun. But before we get into it, I want to take a moment and talk about Glenn's story, which is published under the name G.L. McDormand called Goodbye to All That. It's a great occult detective story. Also blends the genres of hard-boiled detective stories in there as well. I love Goodbye to All That. It's such a good story. And if you're interested in getting a copy, you could reach out to Glenn or find it on Amazon. Uh, this story was also chosen by the Tales to Terrify podcast. They covered it in episode 299. They do a dramatic reading of it. It's a lot of fun. I really, really recommend to all of our listeners who enjoy what we cover to check out Glenn's really awesome detective story. Yeah, as someone who devours podcasts, a voracious podcast listener myself, it was a real delight for me to to have one of my own stories turned into an audio book on this podcast. And I love the Tales to Terrify podcast. They've even done some Gene Wolfe and, and other really good writers in addition to reading my story for some reason. It was a real delight for me. So I hope people will check it out. This story, Reports of Certain Events in London, was the second winner of our April Patreon poll. It came in, in fact, only one vote behind William Hope Hodson. And this one was nominated by one of our, our Patreon supporters. That's a thing you get to do at certain levels. And I'm really glad because I had not read any China Mieville in 20 years. I think I'd probably only ever read his novel King Rat. And that was back when I was in the army. And I'm really glad that we got to cover this because I been aware that he's been writing stuff since King Rat and that people enjoy it. But I've been out of the loop. And I have to say, I really loved this story. So this is a great opportunity. I really loved it, too. And I think King Rat was his first novel. So he's written a lot since that. <laughs> uh, he's a really interesting character. And of course, he's most well known for the New Crows Bond books and Perdido Street Station. But he's been really, really active as a writer in the past five or six years as well, putting out a book every year or 18 months or so. Gotta love those publishing contracts. <laughs> uh, but this story is a real delight. It has one of my favorite conceits of weird fiction, of genre fiction in general, uh, which I think, Glenn, you'll talk about in just a moment. But let's not delay any longer. Let's just jump right into the story. Right. There are two conceits about this story that we need to talk about before we really get into any of the particulars of what's going on. And the first one is that this is a documentary story, right? It's about a character reading through documents that have come into his possession. Most of the story is the presentation of these documents with real minimal intrusion of the actual frame narrative of the character who is going through them. And this is a classic storytelling device, especially of weird fiction. The Call of Cthulhu by H.P. Lovecraft does this. And so does the VRT section of The Fifth Head of Cerberus, which we're just finishing up on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast. So the second conceit of this story is that the frame narrator, the investigator, is China Mieville himself. He's not the author of these documents. They're real documents that came to him accidentally. It was a sort of postal mix-up. And he's merely publishing them, which he can do because he's a famous writer. And we'll get some more on that at the end of the story. This, too, is a classic storytelling device. I mean, we can think of The Lord of the Rings or Gene Wolfe's Book of the New Sun, which purport to be translations of discovered documents. And, and even The Princess Bride does this, right? Yeah, absolutely. I'm a real sucker for this conceit, really both of these conceits. And Mieville does them right in this story. He also does another trope that I love in genre fiction in general, which is the you know, fish out of water story where someone gets pulled out of their mundane reality by witnessing or encountering something that can't survive within their current conception of the world as it is. And so the protagonist or detective or investigator or whomever has to get to the bottom of the strangeness in order to understand their place in the new world. And I think Mieville does this brilliantly by, as you said, Glenn, this simple postage screw up, though. I think we'll have to ask ourselves in the discussion whether a mistake has truly been made. There's one more thing I'd like to point out about China Mielville, the narrator, which is that he's telling us that he gets a lot of mail, or at least a lot more than he used to, due potentially to the success of his novel King Rat or Perdido Street Station, which had just come out in the year 2000, which is when the story takes place, but also that his mail sometimes comes opened due to his 
political activity with the leftists and particularly the socialist alliance. I think this is a strange note because he seems to be suggesting that he is being spied on by political adversaries or maybe even the British government. And I wonder if this story is, in fact, some kind of commentary about the ability of the postal system to provide privacy for its citizens, especially given the mix-up that exposes China Mielville to the society that he is about to become acquainted with. And this is going to come back at the end of the story, which is really where we're going to get the sort of biggest chunk of text from China Mieville, the narrator himself. And yeah, I'm interested to, to see how you think that that works, because here at the beginning, it seemed like a bit of a strange note, and it may continue to seem like a bit of a strange note as we dig into what's actually going on in the story. There are a lot of documents that Mieville, the narrator, is going to go through, so we won't pause at, at each one, but I'll, I'll do my best to group them together in a, a coherent way as we go through. But let's take the first document slowly, because it establishes the whole mood of the piece. And this first document is a postcard. We're, we're told it's a cute photo of a kitten, and it has no date, it has no signature. It is a great way to hook us into the story. So I'm actually just going to read what is on the back of this postcard. Where are you? Here as requested. What do you want this for anyway? I scribbled thoughts on some. Can't find half the stuff. I don't think anyone's noticed me rummaging through the archives, and I managed to get into your old place for the rest. Thank God you file. But come to next meeting. You can get people on your side, but box clever. In haste. Are you taking sides? Talk soon. Will you get this? Come to next meeting. More as I find it. And this hooks me right away. There's so much teased on the back of this postcard. And the way that Mieville writes this in sentences that don't even have grammatical subjects and so on really ratchets up the tension and the kind of you know hinted at confusion here on this postcard. It's awesome. Right. It creates an interpersonal conflict before there's actually a story conflict. There's a lot of real mastery of technique that Mieville displays throughout the story. But this is the first one where before even getting into the core conflict of the story, we have two issues right off the bat. One, he's getting the wrong mail, which is coming opened and inspected by some third party. And then there's urgency right off the bat with regard to these documents. And I just think it's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, urgency is exactly the right word for this. And it is really great. So next, we get the the first page of the minutes of a meeting of the BWVF dated from 1976. And this page is very clever, because the first item on the agenda is a proposed name change. And so even though we don't know what BWVF means, we can discern here that it means brotherhood, or at least the B means brotherhood, because even though we don't get the names of anyone in this group, we know that a woman claims that the B is dated and should be changed to society or gathering. And eventually we will learn what the VF means and we'll be able to take a stab at the W as well. We also learn here from these minutes that there are 17 people at this meeting, that they manage a budget and they have subscribers. And we know that on the agenda are two very interesting subjects research notes, and field reports. And this is some great, some really subtle world building that Mieville does here. And, and it continues to draw me in, right? What kind of research does this brotherhood do? Following this, we get a memo from 1992 that was distributed to the brotherhood by the curator of the organization's collections, museum collections or archives. And people have been mishandling the artifacts and they should be more careful and we get a list of these artifacts, which are described as having been recovered. There are wood and glass, guttering and ironwork, and keys in this collection. Yeah, these entries combined with perhaps the low number of people who are members of the Brotherhood, though, I don't know, there's not really any other comparison, but 17 <laughs> seems like a low number for a club. Uh, along with the petty internal squabbling, suggests to me that this is a group that has fallen into some sort of state of decay. It's hard for them to get people interested in watching or paying attention to whatever the Brotherhood is doing. And I think this is a, a theme of this story, this institution that seems to be doing something vital, whose core members who are attending these meetings are engaged on some level, have lost sight of what they're trying to achieve and are resorting to really petty squabbling. So... That's going to come back in a big way in the discussion. Just something to keep an eye on. 
all of these little details are really pointing to some kind of you know secret society. I mean, that's clearly what it is. And here at this moment, it feels a bit like the Watchers Council or something like that, right? Like these are going to turn out to be defenders of us from the the supernatural or something along those lines. It's going to turn out not to be quite true. But the way that Mayville is is peppering this in with it's only these seventeen people who know the dark secret and have access to the artifacts they need and and so on and have fallen to political infighting that this is going to have some dire consequences for us. It's fantastic in the way that he manipulates those types of tropes. It's just awesome. So now we get two pages from the Brotherhood's journal from 1981. There are two short excerpts that set the mood a bit, but it's really the third entry that matters. And this is entitled Report on Work in Progress, Recent Changes in VF Behavior by Edgar Nugan. This is important not just for the the content of the piece, but also because there are some handwritten notes in the margins, some marginalia here. The first sentence is, tracking the movements of VF is notoriously difficult. And the, the handwritten commentary is, no bloody kidding. What do you think we're all bloody doing here? But this tells us that the VF in the acronym is the object of study and that it is something that moves. And we'll find out what VF stands for eventually. But my first thought here was vampire foxes. It's not, but someone should write that story. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know what we'd get out of a vampire fox story, but that's a great attempt to uncover what the acronym is before we find out. There's no way I would have ever guessed what the acronym stood for in this story before it's revealed to us. And it's kind of a big fun part of the story and maybe even a little bit anticlimactic. I couldn't think of anything in the weird fiction world that corresponded to VF. So I just waited patiently as I read until the secret was revealed to me. (laughs) Are you trying to subtly here say that nothing is better than vampire foxes? (laughs) That's probably what I'm saying. Yeah. (laughs) Well, challenge accepted. You can expect a vampire fox story soon. It's going to be a whole series of books, Brandon. It's going to be your fault. As long as they're in high school, I think it'll be okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's the key. That's the key. Well, what matters here is that Edgar Nugent is trying to discern a predictable pattern to the movements of these VF, whatever they are. And he's accounting for data that goes all the way back, at least to 1876. And what he has discovered is that VF are less predictable now than they have ever been. We get uh, another marginal note here that says that Edgar is onto something big. There's also an intrusion from the frame narrative to ask, what is Edgar onto? And the indication here is that the narrator now thinks that he knows. And, And this is great because it tells us to pay attention because there's a mystery here that the framing narrator here has solved. So we might be able to solve it, too, because he also only has these documents just like us. Great storytelling device. All of this so far really has been set up, though. So now we're going to get into the heart of the story with a, a number of documents marked URGENT, all in caps. First is a report of a sighting from 1988, and we're finally going to learn what this brotherhood is investigating. It's streets. It's city streets that suddenly appear, forcing their way into the road network of London, streets that just didn't exist before. And in this particular instance, it's a street called Varmin Way that has inserted itself in the Plumstead neighborhood of London. And it is not a long street. It's it's what in America we would describe as a, a single block, right? It is a perpendicular street that just connects two parallel streets, though it has had to buckle itself in order to fit into this space. And Varman Way is a street that the Brotherhood has tracked for a very long time. In this moment, it doesn't appear any different than it did the last time that they had cited it some decades earlier. But there's another document that's attached to this report, though, and it is a handwritten letter by this guy named Edgar. We've encountered him before to Charles, and Charles is the addressee of all this material, Charles Melville. And Edgar says that this is the real thing, even from where he's standing. He can see the evidence. This is, of course, purposefully vague for us, the readers, but it is certainly exciting, right? We want to know what is the evidence? What is the real thing? What's he inferring here? And Edgar is going to go into Varman Way, which is apparently a risky thing to do. But this evidence that he's talking about is that important. It's worth this risk. He says that Charles should hurry down from wherever he is, somewhere north of London, I guess, and join him. 
But then there's another handwritten note here by someone else that indicates that Edgar's invitation was merely pro forma and that he intended for Charles to not be able to go into Varman Way. Uh, He intended for Charles to be too late to participate in the investigation. And the phrase cut out is used here, suggesting that Charles and Edgar have been investigating something together up to this point, but that now Edgar wants to go his own way. This conflict between Edgar and Charles is going to be a major part of what is happening in this story. We don't see Charles really doing too much, but Edgar is the the sort of driver of this conflict. And whoever has been sending these packages to Charles is maybe on Charles's side. Edgar is not the architect, it seems, of this scheme to loop in China Mielville or confuse China Mielville with Charles Melville. But Edgar definitely has an agenda within the Brotherhood, and it also includes what he's doing with Charles. I, I, I want to briefly say something about the, you know, quote-unquote, civilians who encounter Varman Way. We're told that they don't seem particularly shocked or interested that a new alley has popped up overnight to connect those roads in Plumstead. In fact, Mieville points out that these people who see it are mostly indifferent to the change. And I think that this is thematically important for the story. We do get an instance, though, of a civilian who's shocked by the sudden appearance of the unfamiliar road. And the sense that we're left with is that this person who's uncomfortable with the appearance of this, who's investigating it, feels a sense of the uncanniness of this thing. And so it could also be the case that most people will just instinctually feel the danger of the appearance of a new thing popping up like this overnight and not react to it at all, just ignore it, just go on their way. That might be prudent because the BWVF is extremely cautious of how they interact with these VFs. This part of the story, this detail was crazy to me. I I can't imagine not noticing that there's suddenly a brand new street uh, in my neighborhood. These seem to be people who are just, you know, walking on their their way to work, right? They do these routes a lot, but just casually don't notice. Or if they do notice, yeah, they just shrug their shoulders and and go on their way. And, you know, this part of London, as most parts of London are, is, is made up of row houses. And so in this case, Varman Way has inserted itself in between two houses that previously shared an adjoining wall. And here in Philly, this is also a city of row houses. And I think I would notice that as well, like walking home, you know, that I would realize that uh, the house next door is suddenly further away and that there's a road in the middle of it. Even if it was just an alley, a narrow alley, as it's described here, I feel like I would notice I also would walk down it. Right. Absolutely. But people don't. And they seem to just shrug. The people whose houses are split by this road don't seem to have any interest in the fact that this has occurred. And it's crazy because the Brotherhood tells us that this is kind of the standard reaction that people have when these streets pop up. I think this will become important in our discussion. Next up, we have an urgent report of an aborted investigation. And what we learn here is that the attempt to enter Varman Way was a failure. The group going in had some kind of problem. It's it's mysteriously just described here as certain events. And they had to delay, therefore. And when they went back to Varman Way, the street was gone again. It had gone wherever these streets go. There are some photographs of it, though, and another handwritten note here from Edgar. And, and here he points out to Charles that in the photograph, there is some damage to the street. And he insists that this confirms his hypothesis that Varman Way was recovering from an attack attack. Uh, you know, w- what that means is unclear at this point. And then there's another note here, this one from the person who has sent all of this to, to Charles. And this recounts the discovery of Varman Way in a story around 1700. This story suggests that these types of wandering streets actually fight each other and that this is something they've always done, that they are wild in, in some way. And that, yeah, these streets are attacking each other, like having fistfights or, or something and bruising each other or breaking their bones or something, you know, and thinking of these kind of metaphorically or anthropomorphically. Right. I'm not going to comment on that just yet because that's a rich discussion question that we'll be covering. I, I just want to point out here, I love how Mievel casually drops this phrase, certain events in this section of the story. I like how you know, Mievel, the narrator, is especially concerned about what these events are that stop Edgar from completing his mission, from walking down Farman Way. But for my money, I think there are only two things that the quote-unquote certain events could be in this section of the story. The first is that the VF is 
legitimately dangerous and that nobody actually wants to enter it. It speaks to maybe the age or the actual sensibilities of this group that are not really any more interested in exploring or investigating these uh, roads, but are just become a bureaucratic club and aren't accomplishing anything. The second, and what feels to me is like what actually happened, and both really point to the same thing, is that the group just began to bicker about how they would enter the alley and decided to have another meeting to discuss it at a local cafe. And both of these possibilities, to me, indicate that the Brotherhood is generally ineffective. And I, and I think before we get to the end of the story, we'll understand what Charles Melville's real struggle with the Brotherhood was, what the tension there really was. Also in this section, Miefel is rewarding a close reader uh, by giving us a lot of information. We get confirmation that the group is indeed a brotherhood. We also learn that women have always been included in the group and that Fiona, whose name we didn't know in its entirety before, who was also the one who suggested the group change their name, should just chill out because this has always been this way and it should remain this way. But what's really important about this is the technique that Mievel is using by trickling information to the reader throughout the story so that even getting the first name of a character briefly mentioned provides you with a real thrill. That's all expertly done. And of course, even just the use of the word certain here in front of events. I mean, this is the the hallmark of H.P. Lovecraft, who uses the word certain as frequently as possible. But it always is a way of saying... I know what I'm talking about. I know what the process that brings people back to life from the dead is, but I'm not going to explain it to you, the audience. And it's it's just a real hallmark of his writing. And it's great the way that Mieville uses that here to just describe what amounts to bickering among these 17 people who have to have a committee about everything, right? It's, it's, it's a great joke. It's really funny. Well, finally, in this group of reports is one that is about a traveler in 1992. And what is meant by this term traveler is a street from outside of London that is now appearing here in London. And in this case, it is the Ulica Nervovask from Poland, though there is also a table here that gives some instances in which similar things have happened, including a visit from from West 5th Street in New York, which is a street that doesn't actually exist. And we also learn in this report that there is a BWVF chapter in Chicago. And finally, we learn that VF stands for Wei Ferai, which is Latin for wild roads or, or, or savage streets, uh, meaning untamed, undomesticated streets. We also get a letter from the French equivalent of the BWVF, the Société pour l'étude des rues sauvages. This letter is addressed to Charles, and it's in response to a letter that he's written to this organization, because evidently Charles believes that a human is responsible for the traveler from Poland, a type of street jockey who can ride wild streets and make them travel. It's like thinking of them as horses, as wild animals, like broncos or something here. The French don't believe that, though, but they also have similar legends in their society. And we learn here that there are no people living on the wild streets, even though they have houses and such on them. There just aren't people living there, which is kind of a shame, really, because that sounds cool. Yeah, Charles here is revealed to us as a type of character who, though he's been admitted to a secret society, is convinced there's more and more layers of secrecy that are being withheld from him. And I think we get uh, a sense of that with the, this reference to the Temple of Mithras, which we'll get in a, in a page or so. I only have one thing I want to point out here, which is that one of the streets here is named Torado Log, which I guess doing some loose translation on the fly could mean something like speaking monstrosity or something monstrous who also has a story to tell. It's kind of a crazy name for a road. And I just think it's a fun bit of wordplay that Miaville is engaging in. This is one of the only names of the roads that like stands out. And the letter writer says that it's a particularly nasty road. And I just think it's a lot of fun. This table is great. There's whole stories just embedded in that table of people wanted to take this and, and run with it. It also just has like this great feeling of being part of a, a role-playing guide, right? Where you're you're learning about uh, the different settings in this world that Mieville is, is building here. Really fantastic. He's operating on all cylinders here. It's a great story. All right. The next documents, and we're actually nearing the end of the story here. The, the next documents are going to take up this idea of people taming the wild streets and, and also of people 
living there. And the first of these is a letter to Charles from Edgar. And, and again, I just want to read part of it because I think it's awesome. I have performed three walks in my time and have seen the evidence of the wounds that we I leave on each other. I have tracked the combatants and shifting loyalties. Where, in contrast, is the evidence behind your claims? Why, on the basis of your intuition, should anyone discard the cautions that may have kept us alive? It is not as if what we do is safe, Charles. There are reasons for the strictures you are so keen to overturn. Of course, yes, I have heard all the stories that you have, of the streets that occur with lights ashine and men at home, of the antique costermongers' cries still heard over the walls of Dandel Way, of the street riders. This mythic company of inhabitants and street tamers may be true, but so long as it is also a myth, you have nothing. And this letter concludes by indicating that the dispute between Charles and Edgar is that Charles wants to not just walk along a wild street when it's deemed safe, but to really go into a street and to be present there. And it seems that he may even actually be wanting to stay there when it leaves, when it travels, which certainly does sound scary, though I'm on board. Well, now we're going to get an account of one of these walks, a walk down Varman Way. In 1999, Varman Way returned to the same location it had occupied in 1988. And this is unprecedented in all the Brotherhood's records, this returning to the same location. Edgar and two other members of the Brotherhood performed a, a three-hour walk on the wild street, one member operated as a, a base while these two walked down Varman Way, tethered to the base by means of, of mountain climbing equipment. And this report is incomplete. We've, we've really only just got the first page. And so we only get a description of Varman Way as being largely composed of Victorian era working class homes. But attached to this report are several photographs of damage done to the buildings on the street. And most interestingly, the end of a rope and a climbing buckle held in a young man's hands. And the idea here is clear, right? This rope has been severed because the street has left with someone still on it. Okay, so now we come to the final document. It's a, another handwritten note addressed to Charles. We'll just read it. What did you do? How did you do it? What did you do, you bastard? I saw what happened. Edgar was right. I saw where Varman Way had been hurt. But you know that, don't you? What did you do to Varman Way to make it do that? What did you do to Edgar? Do you think you'll get away with it? Yeah, it's crazy. So we get this sense that the street left and that the two walkers disappeared, that Edgar has gone away. And now Charles is being blamed for it by somebody else inside the society, ostensibly the person who was holding the rope that connected Edgar and the other walker to the base of operations. I want to point out here that the final walk that closes out the document portion of the story was taken, or these people walked this road, Farm and Way, almost a year to the day before China Miaville, the narrator, receives the package from whomever sent it to Charles or maybe even to China. I'm not entirely sure what the meaning of this is, but I think we should think about what the meaning of it is, why all this is collected almost to the year anniversary or sent or meant to arrive on the year anniversary of the loss of these people. Right. And we're done with the documents now. We still have a few pages left in the story, but these pages are all a return to this frame narrative, to China Mieville's experience with these documents. He tells us that he has tried to track down the BWVF, but he's had no luck. And he's even taken to searching for wild streets. He actually found one. He found Unthinker Road in Soho. This is a street that we know from the Table of Travelers. And he keeps going back to Plumstead High Street, and he eats at all the cafes, hoping maybe that one of them is the cafe mentioned in one of the reports. Everywhere he goes, he asks if anyone knows a Charles Melville. But of course, no one does. He's put up a notice saying that he has these documents, but still no one has contacted him. And through all of this, China Mieville has become anxious about streets and about being outdoors. And he's also become afraid of Charles Melville, who's been accused of doing violence here. And this goes on for some time. And then he receives another misdelivered post. It's a letter and it's the last one. So let's just read it because I've been loving these. Where are you, Charles? I don't know if you know by now, I suspect you do, that you've been excommunicated. No one's saying that you're responsible for what happened to Edgar. 
No one can say that. So they've got you on non-payment of subscriptions. Ridiculous, I know. I believe you've done it. I never thought you could. I never thought anyone could. Are there others there? Are you alone? Please, if ever you can, tell me. I want to know. This is chilling, but I think we had inferred what is suggested here already. And what really matters is that this letter is addressed differently than the first parcel that came for China Mieville. The first mix-up had to do with the similarity of their names and also the similarity in the names of the streets that they live on. But now this letter is addressed to Charles Melville, Varmin Way. So how did it end up at China Mieville's house? And now China Mieville does not believe it was by accident anymore. And this is why he's decided to publish all of this material. Either doing this will keep him safe from some sort of conspiracy against him, or just possibly this is actually why it was sent to him in the first place. But still, China Mieville is anxious about what he has learned. Are the wild streets dangerous to humanity? Is Charles Melville coming for him? Has Charles Melville figured out how to wake up regular streets from their domestication? And is he doing it to China Mieville's own street, which has been changing around him since he has learned about this? And these questions are how this account ends. This is the end of the story. Some of these questions we will be taking up in just a few moments in the discussion. I don't have too much to say about the end of this story other than China Mieville sort of wraps it up very much like a fable. There's almost a mortal at the end of the story. So I want to actually read the last paragraph of this story to set us up for the discussion. But before we get into talking about the moral of this story, which I think is probably a little less obvious than it seems on the surface, we'll knock some book club questions out of the way. But first, I'll read this paragraph. We are in new times. Perhaps the Wee Ferai have grown clever and stealthy. Maybe this is how they will occur now, sneaking in plain sight, arriving not suddenly, but slowly, ushered in by us, armored in girders, pelted in new cement and paving. I think on the idea that Charles Melville is sending Varmin Way to come for me, and that it will creep up on me with a growl of mixers and drills. I think on the idea that this is not an occurrence, but an unoccurrence, that Charles has woken blankly rode my home out of its domesticity, and that it is yawning, and that soon it will shake itself off like a fox and sniff the air and go wherever feral streets go when they are not resting, I and my neighbors tossed on its back like fleas, and that in some month's time the main street at abuts will suddenly be seamless between the Irish bookie and the funeral parlor, and that Blankley Road will be savaged by and savaging Soul Den Road, breaking its windows and walls and being broken in turn and coming back sometimes to rest. So the idea there at the end of the story is that all this new construction that's going around London is really just this Charles Melville's new way of organizing these streets to become wild again. Before we dig into that paragraph, I do want to just ask some plotty book club questions. It's just start with the first one. Glenn, what do you think Charles could have done to Edgar? How do you think he could have sabotaged the walk, or do you think he did? Has Charles really become a tamer of these feral roads? I've had a really hard time envisioning how any of this actually works, right? I mean, the idea that that streets are in some way living creatures with will of their own and the ability to move, I mean, that's just a crazy notion, right? So it is difficult to to wrap our minds around that. But there are two ways maybe to interpret what Charles has done or the suggestion about what Charles has done. And and one of them is that he has mastered Varmin way, that he is, is riding it the way a person might ride a horse, and that maybe he was actually secretly on Varmin way when they did this walk. And so then he just left with them, in which case Edgar is with Charles somewhere, or at least was, you know, at some point anyway. But the other possibility here, and I think it's the one that's actually really implied in the the text, is that Charles was not on Varman Way, but that he was somewhere else, but that he had done something to Varman Way to make it want to leave when Edgar 
walked onto it. But I have a harder time wrapping my head around what that would be. I mean, it's it's connected to damage done to the street, which previously had been implied to have been done by another street. But there, in this case, the implication is that Charles himself did it as some kind of way to make the street angry or something like that. But I, I don't really quite understand what the logistics would be. Do you have a better answer than that? I don't have a better answer than that. Okay. <laughs> That's a fine answer. <laughs> we know the only real strange thing about Varman Way is that it reappeared in the same place twice over the course of 12 years, and that maybe somebody was behind that, but I don't understand how the intelligence of these roads functions of where they fight. That doesn't make any sense to me. Do they fight in some special road universe and then appear in our world to heal? What is the evidence that Edgar is going after to try to understand the mystery of these roads better apart from the damage as he's going to do some sort of road surgery to see what has gone wrong, some exploratory surgery, so to speak. All of these questions are still up in the air. And I don't know if China Mieville really wants us to dwell on these mysteries because I think he's doing more with the story. The next question I want to ask you is tied to the title in this phrase, certain events, which we covered briefly in the recap. But what do you really think the certain events are that are mentioned in the story during the first failed walk of Varman Way in 1988? Do you read them? Do you read these certain events as the simple bungling around of this decaying organization? Or do you think something else has taken place that prevented the walk? And I feel like I have to ask this question because this is explicitly in the title of the story. Why is Mieville using this phrase to describe this sort of pop-up meeting of the BWVF to talk about their strategy in walking this street? Right. Certain events in the, the title, or really anyone who's using this phrase, is a way of indicating that you are you mean something specific and your intended audience knows the specific thing you mean but no one wants to say the specific thing right this is and this is what lovecraft does it was badly explaining that during the recap phase of the episode tonight and so you know certain events here in the title I always took just to mean the roads appearing, right? It's the certain events are the sightings of these wild streets. But then we do, as you say, get the phrase used here in the story in this one particular moment. And attention is even called to the fact that everyone knows what the certain events are, but just that no one wants to say what they are. And so it is possible to think that something weird, something supernatural has happened, that they were getting ready to go into Varman Way and it moved or, or you know, something happened, the lights turned on on the street or something like that. And so they said, whoa, let's maybe pause and think about whether or not we want to do that. But I suspect that your suggestion that what really happened was that there was not a clear procedure for how to do this and the group fell into bickering about it. And so they adjourned to the cafe. We know they adjourned to the cafe to talk it over and they took so long to continue bickering about amongst themselves in this committee meeting that by the time they got back there, there was no course of action open to them anyway, right? And I, I think that's Mayville making a joke about the way that committees work and perhaps in particular in political organizations. Yeah, I agree with you. And we're going to talk about the politics of this story in uh, just a few minutes. But I do have another question for you about why China Mayville, the narrator, can't find anybody else in this organization. Where are they? Is China Mieville living in a sort of alternate world where he's received mail meant for a different universe or for these wandering roads? How do you resolve the narrator's concerns about being the victim of a prank or something of that nature at the end of the story? Basically, how do we answer all the questions that you fired off at the end of the recap? Yeah, I don't think that we're actually supposed to think that this is a prank, though that remains an, an open possibility. I, I want to take these documents at face value here. I, I think that's what Mayville wants. But look, this is a, an organization of 17 people in London, or really in southern England, one of the most densely populated places on the planet. So it's not like there's a high percentage of people who are in this organization. Uh, we know there's a, a chapter in Chicago, uh, which is, would mathematically or proportionally be a little bit smaller, probably actually only be about nine people in that organization. Uh, the one in France, presumably around Paris, right? How many people actually are aware of this? I'm not sure that I could find uh, an organization of 15 or so people in London only knowing the name of it and if they don't have a website, right? I don't know how I would find you know, some particular chess club or something like that. 
Right, but he's got access to these people's first and last names. He's got the internet now. He's got hints at things to research. And part of his anxiety is that he's he hasn't been tapped on the shoulder and whispered to about the location of a new secret meeting. I don't know why he's not able to find anybody. Are they going by false names? This is really confusing to me, especially as the last parcel, the last letter is sent to Varman Way. And this is what really stokes the narrator, Tranamiaville's anxiety, is that he missed his opportunity to join this organization on some level, to be found by them. Right, because if he can't find them, and he has means to to do so though this is still early in the internet this is pre-social media and if you don't want to have a website if you don't want to be on the internet circa 2000 you can still pull that off but how does anyone else find this organization then right we're led to believe that this brotherhood is made up of people who actually have noticed that there are these wild streets unlike all of the masses who just put their head down and keep going but how would you find other people just because you notice that in your neighborhood there's a, a new street that's there for five days and then is gone again? The organization itself has to be the one finding people who have had that experience. Or these are all the descendants of people who founded this society circa 1700 in, in London. Otherwise, I don't really know how this perpetuates itself, how this organization continues to exist. Right. It's crazy. And I think we get the sense from this story that this organization is not continuing to exist and that many of the people in the society are old. Edgar, at least, is old and he says he doesn't have that many years left and that perhaps this last walk was the end of the society on some level. So now I think we can turn to the moral of the story or what China Mieville is really up to in the writing of this story. This phrase, you know, living in new times is tied into the narrator's suspicion that the roads have come up with new ways to appear and disappear. And it's all tied to kind of city planning and construction and uh, the sounds of new construction going on in your idyllic neighborhood or house. And it, it's an interesting concern. And so I'm wondering if China Mieville, the writer, is concerned about the ongoing construction and changing nature of London or all of England. I mean, this is something I experienced visiting Denver recently after having been away for 10 years and going back and it's just all new construction apartments and the streets are completely different. Everything, it feels unfamiliar returning to a place that was once your own home. And, and meanwhile, he's there and he's living in London and noticing all of these things changing around him. And, and maybe there's a, a question about how you maintain a sense of home with all of that going on. But I also want to talk about the politics of this story, too. China Mielville is concerned with all of this, but he's also connected to and a member of varying left-wing groups. And it seems to me as though a desire to conserve and being wary of change is something of a position that's typically taken up by those on the political right, or at least those who would identify as conservatives in some level. And it further seems to me that BWVF is uh, an example of an extremely conservative or traditional group. For instance, it's unwilling to take any risks. We see that with the first walk where they're just gun shy about taking that risk. They don't take any hasty action. It won't even change its name from brotherhood to anything else to accommodate the shifting norms and gender discourses because the group has always been a brotherhood with women as members. And why change it? It's fine. And it's also strange to me that China Mieville is desperate to find this group. He almost wishes that they would find him and initiate him into their membership. So in other words, from a political standpoint, we have a politically progressive narrator concerned about construction going on in his neighborhood around his house, desperately seeking information from a conservative, maybe not in the political sense per se, organization that is shown through these documents to be really ineffective as a group and who in 200 years of its existence has managed to collect some street glass and keys and stone and mortar from feral streets. That actually might be the preferred pace for a conservative organization <laughs> to work. But I guess I'm really asking in a roundabout way, what is going on with the politics of this story? And how do you think it complicates or simplifies the moral of the story, which is something like pay attention to the place where you live and what's going on there, because it's always changing and you might lose what you love. 
if you don't pay attention. Right. That's that's clearly the the real moral of this story, right, is that people just have their head down. And even when they actually do notice some extreme and even profoundly disturbing change in their environment, they just try to ignore it and pretend it's not there and hope it will go away. And Mieville is writing this story. I mean, it's published in 2004, so written probably 2003, 2002, at the the tail end of the economic boom in the West and particularly in the UK, in London in particular, I guess, that followed the end of the Cold War, right? The, The dream of the 90s here, this economic boom that was changing the shape of, of cities all over the place. I mean, my hometown of Chicago went through this in the 90s as well. Places all over went through this. And it seems that Mieville here, I mean, by invoking his credentials as a socialist, not just ideologically a socialist, but as someone who has run for office as a socialist, is exasperated that people are just accepting change without thinking critically about it or even noticing that things are changing around them and that no one has asked them if they're on board with these types of changes. I think that is the real moral of the story. And, you know, I think maybe if you lose a political election, you feel like the reason is that people haven't heard your message. They're not awake to your message, right? So I, I can I can see him writing this story in the aftermath of having lost that election as kind of consoling himself that way. But we could also point to the, the fact that most of the action of the story is taking place in Plumstead, which is a poor working class neighborhood in South London, the south side of the, the Thames. Uh, in fact, very far from central London, extremely to the east. It's not a great neighborhood that these people are going to. And there is maybe a sense that the people in this brotherhood are some kind of intellectual elite. You write, these are people who are doing science experiments and writing erudite bulletins to each other. And they know Latin, they have a curator and so on, but who are then prowling the streets of this working class neighborhood and, and even remarking that the inhabitants of this working class neighborhood don't care about the same things that they do. So there's some interesting class stuff going on there that maybe we as Americans aren't quite as attuned to. That's something I'd love to hear about on the forum from some of our our British listeners. But I had a different reading of the politics of the Brotherhood itself than you did. I'm I'm really interested by this reading of the Brotherhood as uh, perhaps standing in for conservatism in in some way, because I actually assume they were standing in for the political party that Mieville is a, a member of and is saying, this is why we can't get anything done is because you just talk about nothing and and bicker amongst yourselves and don't take any actual action. You send bulletins and reports to each other, but no one does anything. And, you know, it is perhaps a question of whether Charles in this story is a villain or a hero, but his crime in the eyes of the Brotherhood is really that he supplanted the committee mechanisms of their organization and took action on his own. And so I, I felt like Mieville here was, was airing some frustration with the, the local socialist party that he was a member of, of being too internalized to actually be a force for good in the world, even though that's the stated mission of their political party. That's a fantastic reading too. And I think it absolutely works on that level for this organization to be ineffective because the ability for them to take action is so rare and infrequent that they've forgotten how to act all together. And this could stand in for any type of political organization or committee, I think, that exists. The reason why I read it as a standard for conservatism is because of the sort of pace of change these people are looking at their concern for tradition above all else, the fact that they simply notice when these roads show up and that leaves them with a sense of the uncanny or defilement of place. These are all hallmarks, not again of political conservatism, but of a sort of like conscientious conservative identity. I would not say that love of place is something that is particularly tied to conservatives uh, in general or a person like a Burkean conservative is really what I'm thinking of here. However, it is not anything that that could be identified with like a progressive movement of making things better. This is let's take the best from the past and preserve it and do good stuff now and pass all of that on to those who come after us. And I think that what I see is a veiled critique of that type of conservatism is that that just leads to a different type of decay within an institution or organization. And part of Mieville's anxiety and 
fear on some level is that he thinks he should be a part of this organization now. One, because that type of tradition and knowledge provides categories that give him a sense of comfort. They know what's going on. He can learn more. He can be initiated into those secrets and maybe move it in another direction. And maybe Charles here is the hero. He is the counterpart of China Mieville explicitly in the text and that perhaps the reason why this group doesn't go after new people is because they don't want another Charles. They're more interested in remaining a group now of 15 or 14 and to decay and rot entirely from within than to have somebody new come in and change the status quo. So I see that as the veiled critique here of um, conservatism or the conservative position or conservative politics. But I also, what complicates the idea for me is that Mievel is saying something like he's looking at the political spectrum as a circle, as Hannah Arendt does, rather than a line and saying like, there's there's areas where like we're right in line and we can help each other out. I don't want all this construction going on all the time. There are things we ought to preserve in order to maintain our identity, our sense of place. We can work together on that. And so I, that's what I see kind of going on is the tension of the story. And ultimately, this kind of internal focus, this almost sort of navel gazing that we see the Brotherhood engaged in is, as we've said, the real moral of the story. Because one of the things that is kind of hiding in plain sight in the story is the fact that the streets of the world are animate creatures that have been domesticated, uh, except for some of them that haven't. And this is something that people could notice all the time for centuries. I mean, for millennia, in fact, forever since we've invented cities and have tamed these roads, but almost nobody does, right? That that in the end, almost all of us are blind to the even just very material reality of our world. And yeah, I think that's what Mieville is looking at here, a sort of call to, to wake us up. But I think on that note, that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Do not forget to check out Glenn's story goodbye to all that. Again, you can find it on the Tales to Terrify podcast, episode 299. I absolutely think you should do this. If you're a listener of the story, if you like the type of fiction we cover, Glenn's story is fantastic. Yeah, and you can always come talk to me about it on the forum as well. And hey, if you're on the forums, come talk to us about what you thought of this story as well. Reports of certain events in London. Very cool stuff going on. Tell us what you think Charles did to the street. Come talk to us about what you think Mievel is doing with this invocation of the Socialist Party at the front of the story. We'd love to hear more about that. Next time, we'll be back with Out of the Earth by Arthur Machen. This is our second story we'll be covering by Machen on the podcast, who is also beating out Lovecraft in our Patreon vote. Exciting stuff. Uh, But until then, we greet you and say farewell.